Well, uh, welcome again to uh, Rotherham Evangelical Church. And we're continuing our series here in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been in here for a few weeks now. But uh, before I get into the detail of that, I want to take you back 40 <coughs> years um, to a young Ian Fenton, who was just starting work. Now, I was a young fledgling accountant. I don't know what the noun for a fledgling accountant is. You can answer on a postcard later. Um, I was working with a team of very experienced folks in, in a steelworks. Some of them had worked there for 40 or 50 years. And uh, one of my co-workers called Ron said to me, I wish I was your age but knew what I knew now. I wish I was your age but knew what I knew now. I thought, that's a, that's a funny thing to say. That's a strange, strange expression, a bit cynical maybe, a bit, a bit depressing. Now, years later, uh, I know what Ron meant. I get what Ron was talking about. And I get what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's saying, I wish I was your age, but knew what I knew now. I've seen how people live their lives. I've seen how I've lived my life, striving after things, looking for success, achieving success. And yet the contentment and the satisfaction that was promised with that was just a vapour. It was something to be pursued and grasped, but it had no eternal meaning. If, so you might know that Ecclesiastes sits in this part of the Bible with Proverbs and Psalms and Job, books that we call the wisdom literature. If Proverbs is wisdom for a young person who is seeking how to succeed... And is advised to fear God and lead not on their own understanding. Then Ecclesiastes is wisdom for somebody who has lent on their own understanding. Who has succeeded as far as the world is concerned but has, has failed to achieve anything of eternal significance. And is now seeking answers as to, to why and how to live their lives. In a realisation of the, of the futility of their actions. So this is important for all of us. This is important because that might describe how you feel. That might describe your stage in your life. It's important perhaps because you're perhaps not in that stage yet. And it's important that we don't find ourselves in this stage of life. Like Ron's comment, Ecclesiastes is not meant to be cynical or depressing. It is meant to wake us up to the reality of of life, what it calls in this book, life under the sun, which means life on earth outside of, of God's wisdom. So today's passage is significant because it's thinking about some of the ways in which we strive in vain, particularly some of the ways in which uh, in our relationships we can strive in vain, uh, how they can be meaningless, in fact have a very negative impact on the people around us, uh, and even on ourselves, when we are living for self-interest, when we're living for, for self-love. So if you're taking notes today, there's a, there's a little handy bit in the back of your programme you can take notes on, but, but if not, here are our headings. We're going to look at uh, three sections, self-love part one. That is not, by the way, that is not a typo. It is self-love part one. I'm aware that you read down there, there's not a self-love part two. 
That is not a problem, okay? If you want to know what self-love part two is, you have to come next week, okay? Next week you see what self-love part two is. So self-love part one, uh, the irony of self-love and a section that I've titled As I Have Loved You. Well, first of all, let's get into a self-love part one. You'll find it helpful if you keep uh, Ecclesiastes 4 open in front of you, because I'll be referring back to that. Um, And so again, we see where the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about things which are meaningless or or a vanity in in older language. Uh, The sense is uh, smoke or, or steam from a kettle, something that we can see. We can see there is an effect from it. We know it's there, but we can't get hold of it. It's something that slips through our fingers. And straight from the get-go, I want to distinguish between a very healthy self-care, okay, self-care, which, self-care, which is uh, being good stewards of the life God has given us, eating well, looking after ourselves, exercising, caring for our mental health, all those kind of things, between that and self-love. With self-love, we have little or no concern for the people around us. With self-love, it's all about us. Our desires are of the utmost importance. And others are either ignored or even quite often used to achieve our our self-centered goals. So let's let's step through these these verses and and look at it with that kind of example. And the the first one here we see straight away, verses 1 to 3, is oppression oppression and its impact on the oppressed i suppose this is the most obvious in one way this might be a on the one hand a brutal uh, political regime or it could be something very uh, interpersonal perhaps falling out with a neighbor and, and oppressing a neighbor it comes about sometimes inadvertently as we're pursuing selfish ambitions sometimes very deliberately we know what we're doing and we're quite happy to crush somebody else the impact you can see there is is horrible verse one i saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter The person who is being oppressed is tormented and the oppressor doesn't seem to care and yet despite all their power ironically the tormented themselves are they suffer they become a little more desensitized to the people who they're oppressing they live with distorted relationships they are hated and they become self-hating as they are twisted from God's good design for human life. Relationships that are based on oppression have nothing to do with real love. Oppressors use others in their selfish self-love. Well, without dwelling on that too much, let's, let's look at verse 4. In verse 4, the writer of Ecclesiastes is looking at envy. And how that drives us to uh, overwork, striving after property and success that has, has no real significance in life. And it's actually all about working for that better car, that better job, that better uh, degree, that better spouse, that better whatever it is. Uh, even resorting to 
hurting others and, and crushing others in order to get that because their motivation is they want to be a bit higher than their neighbour. They want to be a bit higher than their colleague, their, even their own family members, even their own church brothers and sisters. And then those who have been envied, if you see what I mean, those who have been envied, they feel that perhaps, and either these two responses, maybe they want to respond and they want to work harder to achieve something else, to achieve that better car. Or perhaps they feel very looked down on and very judged, constantly being measured and being weighed up by other people, looked down on because of their their clothes, their phone, their choice of TV, box sets, whatever it is, they bec- it becomes a rat race. It becomes a rat race where one is trying to get ahead of the other, get ahead of the other, get ahead of the other, and people are measuring themselves and measuring their self-love by how much ahead of someone else they are. And it says there it is meaningless. It is meaningless toil relationships that are based on envy have got nothing to do with real love the envious use others in their selfish self-love ecclesiastes moves on verse five Uh, verse five and verse six two two opposite kinds of situations verse five we have somebody who is geared towards their own ease towards idleness uh their life lacks meaning and purpose because it's very hard to have meaning and purpose when you're just not wanting to do anything, when you're not actually doing anything. Be clear here, I'm talking about somebody who has, someone who is capable of doing much and yet doesn't want to do anything. We're not talking about people here who, who do not have that kind of capacity. These people love themselves so much that, that ease is their highest concern. They cannot help anyone, they can't support anybody because they haven't got anything to do that with because they are idle. No, in actual fact, someone has to support them. They are able to support this lifestyle because they're using someone else. They're using other people, perhaps people they know, perhaps people they don't know. And the irony is that just lets them drift. Their, their, Their motivations and their lives are just ruined by by idleness relationships that are based on this kind of idleness have nothing to do with real love the idle use others in their selfish self-love but on the other end of the spectrum then verse six you have the overly busy i'm not talking about the busyness of of genuinely serving others and, and caring for others i'm talking about people who are busy for the sake of being busy that's quite hard to say uh, because it makes them feel good. It makes them feel good when they're busy. It'll perhaps for different reasons. Perhaps it makes people, they think it will make people look at them and think, wow, they're really good because they're really busy. Uh, or perhaps to escape from what they consider to be a difficult relationship. Motivation can be busy, but they are being busy for busyness' sake. And the cost of the busyness is the relationship with the people around them. Their family and their friends pay the cost of that person being too busy to pay attention to them, to just spend quality time with them, whatever it may be. 
the relationship is based on busyness, there's nothing to do there with real love. This is using other people in self-love. And writing on two, these two extremes, the teacher, the, the, the person we call the teacher who's written Ecclesiastes here, is reflect on, reflecting on the balance of that. Uh, verse 6, better is one handful with tranquility than two hands, hands full, two hands full with toil and chasing after the wind. Uh, on the one hand, folding your hands and not achieving anything is no good. On the other hand, just grabbing stuff and being so busy doesn't <coughs> achieve, is, is toiling after, chasing after the wind, it says there. Proverbs uh, chapter 30, verses 8 to 9, one of my favourite parts of Proverbs says this, uh, give me neither ri- poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Does that sound familiar? Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal. And so dishonour the name of my God. The teacher here is saying, no, balance. Not too much, just enough. Uh, moving on then into verses 7 and 8. Uh, the teacher reflects on someone who is working for greed, simple greed. True, there is no family and friends around to be hurt by their, their overwork. That is true, but, but then again, there's no one to pass all their, the fruits of their labour onto. They work and work and work and work and work. Why? Because, middle of verse 8 there, his eyes were not content with his wealth. His eyes were bigger than his pockets. You know, give me more, give me more. Why? They don't need that wealth anymore. They're just working to build up a bigger pile to sit on. Someone else could have taken that work. Someone else could be doing that job. And they're still not content. Their idol is their wealth. We're going to talk about more about greed in, in some of the weeks ahead as we get into some of the other passages. We're going to uh, jump over verses 9 to 12 for the minute. We'll come back to that in a minute. Let's go down to verse uh, 13. Uh, can be a little difficult just to, just to step through this. Let me break it down for you. Uh, basically, we're talking about a couple of rulers. So there's a, the first ruler is uh, it's described as a foolish king. Perhaps uh, they've been on the throne a long time. We don't quite know. Um, but certainly they're, they're starting to fail in their kingship. And so a new ruler comes along. Yay, the new ruler's here. And look, they've come up from the streets. They they've, uh, may have come from prison, it says, to the kingship. Or they may have been in poverty. And so everyone loves them. We all love that story, don't we? You, think, you know, Cinderella, Aladdin, Dick Whittington, all these people, you know, you know. Someone coming up from the streets and they've made it to the top. Yay. Uh, And so the new king comes in and everybody follows them because they're great. And then after a while, people sort of go, hmm. Well, yeah, they're they're okay. But uh, it says there, those who come later were not pleased with that successor. Uh, How often do we hear it said about the media? They like to build people up to tear them down. That's not... that's not totally fair. Uh, remember, it's, it's us who buys the paper which builds them up and tears them down. It's us who watches the, the gossip channel to, that builds them up and tears them down. It's us that reads the magazine. 
but not just talking about kings and celebrities, even, even our leaders, our local heroes. Too often, we, th- we, we appoint people, we elect people, we admire people on the basis of popularity, on the basis of celebrity, as opposed to on the basis of substance. Because that, we love that. We love them. We love a good story. Instead of actually taking the time to think about it properly, we put celebrity first in our relationships. That too is a form of self-love. And we hurt ourselves because we don't get the best leaders. We get the leaders who are popular instead of the leaders who we need. Well, that, that's all on the face of it, quite depressing, like the rest of Ecclesiastes, isn't it? Let's move on to point two, irony in self-love. Uh, my dad used to work in a bank in the 1960s and 1970s. It was the Midland Bank. Some of you will remember the Midland Bank. Some of you will not. Uh, and my dad went to the doctor one time with a very nasty cough. And the doctor said to him, you need to stop smoking. Well, that was ironic because he didn't smoke. He'd never smoked. Well, what was happening was he was working in an office where everybody smoked. Yes, folks, back in the day when you worked, everybody around you. They used to smoke on the hospital ward. Yeah, everybody used to smoke. And it was the, the, the effect of the other smokers that had given my dad such a bad cough that, that he, the doctor was saying, man, you know, you're, a, you're a 20 a day man, you need to stop. You know, it's like, no, it's everyone else. When, in our relationships, when we're putting others first, uh, when we put ourselves first, excuse me, the, the expense of others, uh, they are negatively impacted, and we are negatively impacted. We both are. We think we're doing something cool, or we're getting ahead of ourselves. But in actual fact, all we're doing is hurting everyone. Self-love, self-interest, self-serving, looking after number one, call it whatever you will. Whether it's done very deliberately, whether it's done fairly thoughtlessly. uh, We can see that we are going to hurt others. But it's not quite so obvious straight away, but we will hurt ourselves. Again, to be clear, I'm not talking about uh, self-care in a healthy way looking after ourselves. This is, we're talking about exploiting others, using others, unjust relationships, oppressing. And this is the nature of sin, isn't it? This is the nature of sin in the Bible. Sin, sin hurts others. We can sometimes see that from the things we do, but and yet we, it hurts us. It distorts us. We might think we're being very clever or we might just think we're just doing what we want to do. And yet we damage ourselves. And this is what is happening under the sun. Perhaps you can think of a time in your own life when you, do, you know you've done something wrong, you've chosen to, and you can see the impact perhaps on someone else. But then on reflection you realise, yeah, in fact, in fact, there's been an impact here on me as well. And one relationship that I will guarantee you is hurt every time is our relationship with God. As our creator, we're closely connected to him and so... Our relationship with him is always impacted when we sin, when we 
rebel against him. And this is this is part of the a missing part of the a missing piece of the jigsaw. When in society we're trying to tackle big problems like injustice, uh, youth disengagement, political instability, poverty, whatever it is, the list goes on. The missing piece we often forget is sin. The missing piece we forget is the the human heart that is part of the issue. And so our solutions, because they don't take account of that, are flawed. Because of sin, we know there will not be a complete 100% solution to any of those issues. Not in the world under the sun, anyway. Not until Jesus finally comes to justly rule the earth. That's why we sing, come thou long expected Jesus. Because Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, all this relationship using will be done away with. And so, and so as we go on to, as, this is where, why I said, as I have loved you. That's something that Jesus said. I'll tell you in a minute. Um, yeah, okay, maybe I should have listened more to Ron. Maybe he was just giving me great wisdom. Maybe we should be uh, paying more attention and just, just feeling as the, as the teacher of Ecclesiastes writes that it's all just like, Bleh. and life is just going to be that way. That this is very likely going to be our experience in life. That the teacher is saying this is what it holds out for us. Not that everything we pursue will, will necessarily be bad, but it will be meaningless. And that will, this will be our experience under the sun. That this will be our relationships under the sun, that we will either be used or that we will use others. Friend, Jesus did not love in that way. Jesus did not love in that way. The words under the sun do not describe Jesus. He lives outside of that worldly concept. Jesus loved us totally unselfishly. Some of you will know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, the same, same author writing a letter. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. In the book of Romans, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. He died for all the sins that all his followers will ever commit. And he commands his followers to love each other in the same totally selfless way. A new, Jesus said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. Jesus' own life was characterised by a love totally different to this. A relationship totally different to what is here. When Jesus returns, the kind of selfish self-love that we're talking about here will be no more. It will be replaced with love for a God who we will see face to face. When our greatest task will be to worship that God who we are, who we are seeing without restraint, without thought, without using others, without uh, thought for ourselves, it will be completely pure, unadulterated, perfect love. And we look on these kind of evil 
Oppression will cease. Work will be balanced and satisfying. Yes, there is still work, by the way, in heaven. Don't know if you knew that, but there's still work, but it is satisfying. It is balanced. We will envy nobody because, because none of us will have any right to what we have anyway. We'll only be there because of the grace of Jesus. And so there's no envy to be had. The only one who's going to be receiving popularity will be God, and he totally and utterly deserves all the adulation that we can give him. He's worthy of all praise. He is the perfect leader. That's why we look forward to the return of Jesus. That's some of the reasons why we look forward to the return of Jesus. So that's it then, right? You know, Christians, just hope for the return of Jesus. Put up with all these situations and just hope for when Jesus comes back. No, by no means. What is God doing about oppression and envy and overwork and all that stuff? He has sent his people. He has sent Christians and the church into the world to counteract this stuff, to speak into these situations, to be his hands and feet, to be his ambassadors, to love other people. God commands us to love your neighbour as yourself. We must speak out and do what we can. If we see injustice, to that's injustice as God defines it, not as we define it. When we see injustice, we're going to go and try and do something about it. If, we, if we're not going to envy because we want to live a life modelled on God, not modelled on how our neighbour is doing or how our friend is doing. In a number of places... Christians are commended to work as if for Jesus, Colossians 3.23. And so idleness should not be on our, on our plate. We're supposed to work with zeal for the things that God has prepared for us to do in advance. Remember that work includes sitting and listening to somebody perhaps, or sitting and talking with somebody perhaps, or just praying for someone. Also, we're commanded to rest. We're commanded to rest for our own good in the Bible. God himself rested after six days of creation. He didn't need to, but he did, because that's a good thing to model. Uh, someone pointed out to me last week, when, when you think that uh, humans were created on day six, Adam was created on day six, day seven is a, is a rest day. That means the first full day of Adam's life is a rest day. So rest before working, as opposed to resting after working Jesus sends us out under the sun to make a difference let's go back to verse 9 let's just look at verses 9 to 12 two are better than one it's talking about where one person alone fails to succeed one person fails to survive when two people survive we are made for relationship. We are made for real relationships, not relationships that use each other. This is no surprise. This is no surprise to us. We know that since before creation, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit have lived together in perfect harmony, in perfect relationship with each other, serving each other, loving each other, giving to each other perfectly, receiving from each other perfectly. And as humans remember, in Genesis it says, we are made in their image. So we have that in our design. We're modelled 
for, to live in relationship. Together is how we thrive and survive. That is why Christians come together in communities. Those communities are called the church. For some of you, it may be hard to read, read those passages because you may say, well, I'm single or I'm divorced or, or I'm widowed. I, I, I hear you, I get that. The church is here where we can be with brothers and sisters who can be there when we fall down. Who can, so we can survive together, so we can thrive together. And he talks about two and two and two and two and two and two. And then it says at the end of verse 12, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. We're just talking about two people. Why is he talking about three strands? Because there's three strands in the Trinity. There's three persons in the Trinity. The Trinity is perfect in that way. But think about it this way. Anytime two Christians get together, there are three persons there. There's the two Christians and there's God. And the, the three together make a relationship which is strong. I, I would not like to be uh, lowered out of a, during a fire or something like that, Lord forbid, I would not like to be lowered out of an upper story window on a rope made of one strand. Okay, that would not be a comfortable experience in any way. Uh, if I was walking down the street in Rotherham and somebody was lowering a piano out of an upper story window, on a rope made of two strands, I would be very nervous walking underneath the piano on two strands. Three strands? Yeah. I pro well, I probably wouldn't actually, but, but yeah, three strands. That's more sensible. That's tough. That's strong. It's tough enough to live under the sun with hope. Three strands. Three strands are tough enough to love our neighbours as ourselves. Tough enough to forgive each other's sins. Tough enough to care and be committed and to tell others about Jesus. And from the world's point of view, all that stuff is crazy. Under the sun, that all seems crazy because it's all in vain, right? It's all meaningless. That's what the writer was writing about here. No. First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Because Jesus died for us. Because he's purchased us at such a cost because we will be rewarded because it is his word that we are about. If a steward is looking after something for nobody then it's pointless but if a steward is looking after something for uh, their master then it is worthwhile because their master will reward them their master will be pleased if we are living a life which is self-absorbed self-centered self-loving then yes the writer of ecclesiastes is spot on it is all meaningless it is toiling after the wind but a life that is reflecting the love of Christ, a life that is doing work motivated by the love that Jesus had for us when he died, will always have meaning. That life will not be in vain. That life is going to be one where we will see fruit from it 
a life where we will hear at the end of it, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray to Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Sometimes there are parts of it that can seem challenging, which can seem at times depressing. That is true. And yet this word is given to us to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, to motivate us. Your word is not meant to be a negative thing for us but it is real and when we live in this world we can see life under the sun we can see what is said here is so often real but what happens under the sun is not the end of the story what humans do from our own selfish motivations is not the end of the story your son is the end of the story and we live in his light Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. We pray that this word would change our hearts to make us more like your son, Jesus. Amen.